Hi, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. I'm Andy Boyd. Today we're talking with James Shapiro about his new book, Shakespeare in a Divided America. Jim, thanks for coming on the program. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Yeah, so um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be writing about Shakespeare? Well, it was a surprise to me to be writing about Shakespeare in America. I've spent the last uh, 40 years or so teaching Shakespeare uh, and researching and writing about Shakespeare, but almost exclusively about Elizabethan and Jacobean Shakespeare. So I spent a quarter century in all writing a pair of books on A Year in the Life of Shakespeare in 1599, and then a uh, what I think of as Rocky II, uh, Shakespeare in 1606, the year of, of King Lear. And uh, immersed myself in the day-to-day of Shakespeare's career. I could probably tell you the weather in late April 1599, uh, but I couldn't tell you what was happening until I turned to this recent book. I couldn't tell you what was happening, say, in America in 1849. So like a lot of Shakespeareans, I'm a bit of an Anglophile and uh, focus on that aspect of Shakespeare rather than, say, Shakespeare in an American context. And that all changed in 2016. Yeah, the title Shakespeare in a Divided America is is pretty explicitly timely. Uh, and yet it's pretty clear in your book that America's always been a divided America. Well, you know, that is one of the things that I didn't know when I began the book. Uh, on the eve of Trump's election, uh, the great Shakespeare scholar, Stephen Greenblatt of Harvard, wrote a very powerful piece, an op-ed piece in the New York Times, uh, comparing Trump to Richard III and suggesting even then that he was a tyrant. And he followed that up with a a characteristically brilliant book uh, called Tyrant, which made the argument that Trump fit characteristics of a tyrant and that his followers... resemble those who were enablers in Shakespeare's plays. And I wasn't sure that was true. I wasn't sure at that time that Trump was indeed a tyrant. I'm a lot more sure of that now. But I also wasn't sure, if we can all go back a few years, uh, about whether the problem was one man or whether the issues that led to Trump's election in 2016 had been if you will, baked into American history and culture for a couple of hundred years. So one of the things that I wanted to do in in writing that book was to answer that question for myself and and for others. Yeah, um, it, it's very clear in the book, and I, I guess I, I I don't know this hadn't really occurred to me before, but that so many of Shakespeare's plays are about breakdowns in a society. Uh, so in that way, it seems like they're per- particularly apt for now, but also particularly apt for any time when it seems like these big cleavages in American society are particularly evident. I think that's very true. And I think that's even truer now than it was three months ago, now that we're living in an age of pandemic uh, and Shakespeare lived through a series of pandemics and wrote his greatest plays during outbreaks of plague or shortly thereafter. And it has made me very much aware that in so many ways, his plays anticipate many of the political and cultural and even uh, epidemical ruptures that we now face. Yeah, definitely. Are, Are there plagues in his plays explicitly? That's a great question. Um, A plague in 1592-93 that lasted into 94 took the lives of one out of every seven Londoners. A decade later, uh, a really massive uh, plague took the lives of 20,000 or really one out of every five Londoners. And that plague recurred on and off from 1603 to 1610. So, so much of Shakespeare's professional life was connected with epidemic. That having been said, people 
are strangled in Shakespeare's plays, drowned in a bucket of wine, beheaded. Uh, all kinds of things happen, but nobody dies of plague. Nobody dies of plague in any Elizabethan play. And the reason for that is uh, they didn't really know what caused plague, but they knew that uh, social distancing was necessary. And when more than 30 or 40 people died of plague in London and the, the report of deaths was printed every Thursday so everybody knew, the authorities would close the theaters. And uh, it was bad for business. It led a lot of theater companies then, and I suspect now, to go belly up. And uh, uh, you did not write about plague. You could allude to it. You could have King Lear speak of Goneril as a plague sore. You could have Macbeth include a description of a young man leaving his house with a flower in his cap, and the young man dies before that flower fades. So there are passing allusions to plague, but except for, say, Ben Johnson's Alchemist, written in 1611, after this whole run of plague is over, nobody really sets a play in plague time. Yes, in Romeo and Juliet, Friar John is uh, unable to deliver the message to Romeo. He's, uh, uh, he's quarantined uh, or suspected of harboring disease. Those are all passages which will mean a lot more to uh, to us now than they did uh, a year ago. But uh, no, Shakespeare steers clear of plague, but it doesn't steer clear of what happens when countries are ruptured by bad leaders or epidemics, uh, not epidemics explicitly, but uh, kind of plate tectonic shifts in how the world is seen. Since you mentioned the connection with Trump and the, that being a, the 2016 election being an inspiration for you in writing the book. Are there any Shakespeare characters that you feel are particularly Trumpian? I tend not to look to uh, characters in Shakespeare and, uh, as we say in the in the business, read them uh, typologically as if we're trying to find an individual who represents a particular character. Uh, I'm much more drawn to the ways in which contemporary productions might map themselves onto political leaders and political situations, which we find ourselves 400 years later. Yeah, and, and your book really takes us through a number of those productions throughout the sweep of American history and, and shows us how Shakespeare has been used in different historical junctures. Um, what do you think makes Shakespeare so useful and so sort of politically malleable? I've been thinking uh, a lot about that. And uh, it's quite extraordinary if you think about it, because there are not a lot of writers or artists of any kind who are claimed uh, as avidly uh, on the cultural left as on the cultural right. And if anything, the cultural right for most of the history of this country has worked really hard to embrace Shakespeare in that great tug of war and uh, claim Shakespeare for uh, its own. So one of Shakespeare's uh, great gifts, I suppose, is the fact that his plays, uh, uh, when read in stage, seem to speak for exactly what each ideological group believes is its own vision. You have a little tidbit that I'd love you to unpack more in the book about how Shakespeare's education uh, may have played into his ability to kind of portray both sides of a contentious issue. Yeah. Uh, if you were an Elizabethan schoolboy, and there were only boys in, in grammar schools at that time, you were taught in u trompe partem. In other words, you were taught to argue both sides of a question. Uh, and uh, is Donald Trump a tyrant or not? Is, uh, you know, that it would be a classic example. Or for that matter, is Abraham Lincoln a tyrant or not? And it has a kind of Talmudic quality to it. And uh, my earliest years was spent in... Uh, an orthodox yeshiva, so I'm not unaware of that kind of Talmudic way of being able to argue anything. And uh, Shakespeare was very adept at that. And you take a play like Julius Caesar, for example, and you can argue just as persuasively 
that it's a play that shows the conspirators were in the right, but unfortunate in uh, how things turned out. Or you could argue that they were in the wrong and clueless for trying to destroy a republic uh, or save a republic by unrepublican and undemocratic means. So uh, a lot of his plays are set on a razor's edge, and that makes them fun to stage uh, and contentious at the same time. Yeah, you mentioned two different productions of Julius Caesar. You talk about uh, the production at the public that I believe you were involved with to some degree, as well as Orson Welles' Popular Front era production that sort of uh, cast the conspirators as anti-fascist rebels or something. That production uh, was one of the great productions in American theater history. It really ushered in modern dress. And Orson Welles, he's in his 20s, and he chooses this play, and he gives it the subtitle, Julius Caesar, Death of a Dictator. And he had recently been to Nazi Germany. He attended rallies. He saw how Nazi propaganda was working. This is late 30s. And he saw the possibility of taking Julius Caesar and turning it into a, uh, a play about the dangers of fascism. And uh, it was not only an extraordinary production, but one that has influenced every American production of that play, whether directors are fully aware of that or not, in the decades since. It seems to me like part of the fervor around the uh, Shakespeare in the Park production was that people assumed that Oscar Eustace was doing a similar thing, was saying this is a tyrant and we need to bring him down, which is precisely the opposite of his interpretation. Yeah. Maybe not the opposite, but at least it's, it's not what the production was saying. That's very true. And it was one of the most misunderstood productions uh, in recent history. And one of the things that I try to do, and my book is bookended, if you will, the first chapter and the final chapter talk a bit about that production which everybody seems to have heard about, but only, say, 50,000 people actually saw. And uh, in addition to being uh, an English professor at Columbia, I'm also the Shakespeare scholar in residence at the Public Theater, which is a fancy way of saying I work with directors, I help them prepare the text, the cuts. Uh, I tend not to do much with casting, but uh, when a production begins, I'm in the rehearsal room and do a lot of the table work for the opening days uh, 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 of the rehearsal process so that actors can answer questions or have their questions answered about the language and the history and the traditions associated with, with productions. And it's a lot of fun for me. I get to work with spectacular actors and I got to work with Oscar Eustace closely, who's in addition to being artistic director of the public, was the actual director of this of this uh, production. So I also get a little plastic coated card which allows me into the public. I don't have to stand online with you and everybody else in New York from dawn to, to get in to see Shakespeare in the Park. So I was there pretty much every night during this run. And Eustace is um, a very openly leftist uh, 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 guy and uh he had done this play three times before and had made it even more radical in the past and this time he came back to it because he understood something about the moment and remember he's deciding to stage this play 30 days after trump is elected and not even put into office and he's already cast it by the time that trump becomes president and at that time, we were many of us were saying or reading that Trump would steer back to the middle. He would uh, try to capitalize on the center rather than simply playing to the base that elected him. So it's it's difficult to remember how uncertain things were back then. And he cast as Donald Trump a Donald Trump lookalike, a tall blonde actor with a hair blown back, with a, a long red tie and the blue suit. And he cast as uh, Calpurnia, Caesar's wife, uh, 
basically a Melania lookalike with a, uh, an Eastern European accent. And uh, what he wanted to do, in a way, was to create a sense of whiplash in the mostly liberal audience that goes to see Shakespeare in the Park. We were hated Trump, and a lot of the things we hated about Trump were in this production. His mocking of people with disabilities, his arrogance, his love of flattery, his desire to be king. And Eustace tapped into that brilliantly until the moment where the Trump-like Caesar was brutally assassinated, the knives came out, and he was cut to pieces. And at that moment, he had 50 individuals in the audience, not on stage, but seated amongst us for the first half of the production, stand up and start to jeer and shout and yell at the conspirators, as in what the F you're doing, you bastards, this is terrible, creating a sense of confusion, as I said, whiplash in the audience, and making us realize that, yes, we had gotten what we wished for, but how terrible that was and how destructive of democracy it was to achieve these ends by violent and undemocratic means. And that was what Oscar Eustace wanted. He wanted to open up that conversation. And what he didn't realize, and now we all realize, but didn't at the time, was that the right was really not interested in conversation. The day and age of William F. Buckley getting on TV and having a conversation with Oscar Eustace, that was over. That's dead and buried. George Will was not going to write about this. Instead, what you had were right-wing demagogues getting on their talk shows and saying, I will pay $1,000 anybody who disrupts that show, who goes in and, and chants against Hillary or uh, AIDS or whatever it is. And all of a sudden, people started coming in to the theater. Eustace and his wife and daughter started getting death threats. The actors were getting death threats. The public had to start inspecting people so that they would catch people like one who was carrying paintballs to fire at the actors. And the FBI was showing up. All this stuff was going on. It didn't kind of make it into the news uh, at all. The public didn't want to uh, draw attention to this. And what you had was a situation where real protesters, after Caesar was assassinated, started rushing the stage after the fake protesters started protesting the action. And the Upper West Siders, God bless them, sitting in the audience, were terrified because yeah. they did not understand and they couldn't tell which on. was which. And I knew yeah. <laughs> who were the fake ones and who were the real ones. And by the second or third day of, of, of live protests, so to speak, the actors playing fake protesters were allowed to whisper to those sitting near them, I'm just faking. But that, I think, probably confused people even more. Yeah, definitely. It was great theater. I mean, I have yeah. never been at a theatrical event as fraught and tense as that. I remember one evening it got so bad, I realized I have to, I have to leave. I can't take the pressure. Is somebody going to rush the stage? Are they going to hurt the, act, the actors? And I got up to walk out in the middle of the second act, and um, the security started rushing me because I'm a 60-something white guy who looks like a Trump supporter, exactly the kind that was going to create havoc. And luckily, one of the security guys knew me, and I wasn't hogtied and dragged out of the theater. But that's what it was like. That's when that laminated badge comes in handy. Yeah, uh, easy to pull out of your pocket when you have plastic clips <laughs> behind your back. Wow, that's crazy. I, I actually was a, was an usher at Shakespeare in the Park one summer, so I had that oh, same experience of seeing uh, oh, right. Othello, you know, 30 times. Great. It's it's really great, and, and you pick up incredible nuance on, on different evenings. But for me, the takeaway from that production is that um, we live in dangerous times. We live in a time where, um, from where I sit uh, on the Upper West Side in, in isolation right now, um, watching on TV as protesters are trying to, at Trump's behest, disrupt measures taken for their own protection across this country. 
We live in a time where the right is much more comfortable toting uh, rifles, threatening violence, intimating that they're there to win. And the left has never been that comfortable with those stakes. Yeah, it's a, a fascinating argument towards the end of the book where you talk about the kind of culture wars of the 90s where the right was defending Shakespeare as, you know, obviously this great figure of Western culture that should still be taught and shouldn't be taught in these sort of deconstructionist or post-colonial ways, but just for the purity of the text. But even that's too elitist for the contemporary right. Like the idea that you would like do Shakespeare in the park, which to me is just like one of the beautiful traditions of living in New York is like, oh, these Upper West Side, you know, Shakespeare aficionados. And it's like, what are you talking about? Like there's, you know, you think back, go ahead. Well, it seems like at least until, you know, until very recently, Shakespeare was a common ground and it was a ground of struggle, of contestation, but they at least sort of knew what they were talking about. Like you have many points in your book where people have bizarre, racist, sexist readings of Shakespeare, but they are sort of at least grounded in the text in some way. Whereas at this production, it's one still from a grainy cell phone video that then becomes the whole story. I mean, you even talk about the Astro Place riots that I didn't, I had never heard this, that part of the issue was actually the, the different styles of performing Shakespeare that this American actor and this British actor uh, sort of brought to it. And that was actually discussed by these rioters. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. Even the most violent rabble rousers uh, back at the Astor Place riot, uh, could quote Shakespeare uh, fluently, and and these were street hoods, you know, these were mob guys, so to speak. Um, it's hard to remember, but it was the second George Bush who created a Shakespeare in American communities endeavor through the National Endowment of of, of Arts that, under Dana Joyer, went to military sites and to schools in areas in this country which don't have Shakespeare in the park or don't have 150 festivals that Shakespeare festivals that dot the, the land just to ensure that that right wing desire to extend the reach of Shakespeare to every citizen was and was respected. And that wasn't even 20 years ago. And that vision is gone. Yeah, it's such a depressing chapter. I mean, you 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 write it well, but the story is just—it's so—it just is so dumb. Like the the criticism is so shallow. Do, do you think? Well, I mean, yeah. What, what did they like? Was it just that they underestimated the paranoia of the online conservative movement now, or what did they get wrong? I think that. The assumption was, going back to arguing both sides of a question, that um, Americans have an innate desire to hear things argued out. And, and uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War, the, the FCC instituted uh, something that became called the Fairness Doctrine, essentially. If you were going to air something on television or radio, that was controversial. You needed to put on somebody who reflected the opposite point of view. And the reason for that was uh, the people behind this had lived through the Second World War and saw the dangers of propaganda and the dangers of silos. And uh, they were not going to let what happened in fascist Italy and Germany take place on their watch. And uh, under Ronald Reagan, Thanks to uh, Justice Scalia, I believe. I have to double check uh, which justices not yet on the Supreme Court uh, decided that this was merely a doctrine, not a law. Uh, decided, yeah, we don't need that anymore. And with that, you have the rise of Fox News and the silos that have built up, that have uh, torn the fabric of democracy. Yeah, yeah that's really, um, really troubling. Um, I'd love to go to uh, some earlier moments in American history that you talk about in your uh, book. You have a chapter about Othello and John Quincy Adams' bizarre hatred of Othello. 
which I found really upsetting because I've always thought of John Quincy Adams as being this sort of uh, great establishment liberal. Um, you know, he's not he's not William Lloyd Garrison, but he's about as good as you get inside the halls of Congress. But this idea that a, a black man and a white woman would be together is just uh, drives him crazy. He thinks it's disgusting. That's his word, exactly. When he was uh, an 18-year-old at Harvard and giving a talk to his club there, that was the word he used to describe Othello, disgusting. But it would have been hard at the time to know exactly what he meant by that word. And my chapter takes us through that story. And, uh, you know, as as you said, he was a great liberal. He was one of the most uh, feared and hated opponents of slavery. He was the man who fought the Amistad case in front of the Supreme Court. He was a guy who went back into the House after serving as sixth president just to fight slaveholders and the extension of slavery into places like Texas. So his street cred as an abolitionist was as good as anyone's. And yet he couldn't wrap his head around a white guy, a white woman, rather, sleeping with a black man. He just couldn't do it. Now, he didn't write about this, not even in his tens of thousands of pages of, of diaries that are up in Massachusetts and are archived there that I was able to access. And he certainly didn't write about this or publicly speak about this uh, so far as we know. But uh, in the mid-1830s, he was invited to dinner up in Boston at what turned out to be the worst dinner party, arguably, in American history. And he was seated next to Fanny Kemble, who was a superstar British actor, and she was touring the United States with Shakespeare Productions. And the president was seated next to her. He's in his 60s, she's in her early 20s, and he spends the evening mansplaining Shakespeare to her, including the argument that, as you said, Othello is disgusting. And he couldn't kind of believe it, but she went home and wrote this up and two years later published it. And he was mortified and retaliated, uh, if that's the right word, by publishing a pair of essays, uh, one of which is called The Character of Desdemona, in which he says Desdemona for sleeping with Othello who strangles and smothers her to death, got what she deserved. That was mind-blowing for me. How do you reconcile that with his otherwise spectacular credentials? Yeah, it, it seems like that's just, those are two things that it, you you really can't reconcile. It's a contradiction, right? I mean, like, you, what's your argument about how, how to fit those two things together? I mean, is it just that he's a complicated guy or? I, I that you know, he probably was a complicated guy. Um, he wasn't the best uh, of uh, feminists, we can certainly say, and his wife would probably agree. Um, I would say this. I would say um, there are things we're really not honest with ourselves about. In fact, you could ask 100 people on the street, are you a racist? And my guess is no one will admit to being a racist. There's just not things we admit to, sometimes even to ourselves. And one of the beauties of Shakespeare is when you ask people to talk about Shakespeare, all of a sudden they're revealing things about themselves that they otherwise would not reveal. So I thought, why not? try to understand something about this country that was leached out of the history books I was taught in high school and try to understand through Shakespeare the lies we tell ourselves or the half-truths that we, we share with others. And we're not really good in America at talking across a cultural divide as well. So one of the ways in which I was wrestling with understanding the nature of that divide was, again, through the only thing I really know, uh, which is Shakespeare. Yeah, um, that's, that's fascinating. Um, I would love to ask you, I mean, this is a little outside of the focus of your book, but um, is, do you think Othello is about race in a way that we, would, uh, that, we, that we think about it today, or is it too early to speak about it in that way? I think you have to look not simply at 
Othello, the text published in Cordo in 1622 and in Folio in 1623. But what happens when that is released into history? And I'll give you two or three anecdotes, which you can respond to any way you want. Uh, I had a student, a graduate student, who was from the South and very interested in why this was the most popular play in antebellum South. Why, why did white people love Othello? Even if it was what we call the Bronze Age of Othello, it wasn't really a black guy, it was more like copper tone colored at the time. People in the South would name their slaves Othello. We know that from runaway slave advertisements uh, in newspapers in the South. In 1825, here's another anecdote, Ira Aldrich could play Othello on the London stage. But over a century would pass before uh, a black man, Paul Robeson, could play Othello on Broadway. So I'm more interested in what happens when you take a play uh, like Othello, which has a different history in Britain and Germany and France and Finland and Israel and all over the world, and monitor or trace that history in a country whose primal sin or one of whose two primal sins is slavery and see the discomfort and the contortions that uh, are connected with the staging and teaching of that play. Yeah, the, the, the Shakespeare in the Park did Othello a couple years ago, uh, and I went with a friend who's black and you know, I, I left the play, you know, pretty sure that it's an anti-racist play, or at least a, it's a play about prejudice. That's what Iago hates about Othello, is that he's a successful black man, and Iago wants to take him down because of that. But my friend left just thinking, no, this is a racist play. I think that a lot of... Uh, uh certainly actors and directors of color are wary of this play. And I know from having worked on that production in the park that a lot of people turn down the role of Othello for precisely that reason, that it's a racist play. But it, it may also be a play about racism. I don't think those two are mutually exclusive. And uh, Iqbal Khan for the Royal Shakespeare Company, with whom I also work, did a play in which both Iago and Othello were black men, which raises all kinds of tense questions about what motivates Iago to take down Othello. Um, I'm a big, I wrote a book early on in my career uh, called, uh, called Shakespeare and the Jews. And a lot of Jews, certainly a lot of Jews I grew up with, wanted uh, the Merchant of Venice to be retired from the lineup of Shakespeare plays. And I have never been willing to do that, not because I think it's anti-Semitic, but because you really don't know what people think about Jews until you stage that play. And I would say the same thing holds true for Othello. And I would say the same thing holds true for how people look at um, those whose identities are gender fluid in play after play that involves cross-dressing women turning into men, boy actors playing women, playing men, playing women. And it gets very complicated. And, um, you know, if, if, if somebody had said in the early years of our republic, let's choose as the writer, we're going to teach in schools and celebrate as our own national poet in a way, a guy who writes a play about a white woman sleeping with a black guy, a Jew taking a knife to a Christian to cut a pound of his flesh, adultery, alcoholism, everything that keeps America up at night. Let's, let's make his plays central, um, which is in fact what we did. And no contemporary playwright writing these things could be embraced by the left and right as Shakespeare has been. Yeah, it, it certainly seems in your book like Shakespeare is kind of expressing the repressed uh, id of American culture, right? Like, it's almost like, of course, Othello is what they're staging in the antebellum South, because we always go to the theater to see the things talked about that we don't want to talk about, but also desperately want to talk about. Yeah, that's perfectly put. And that's the argument of my book in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk more about questions of gender. You talk about Charlotte Cushman. 
who uh, became, uh, I don't know, became famous for playing Romeo is the right way to put it, but maybe was <laughs> famous, but became even more famous for playing Romeo. <coughs> Romeo is, you sort of say that Romeo was considered, you know, a kind of effeminate uh, character. So maybe a woman was the only person who could play it as successfully as she was. But at the same time, other people were very disturbed by her performance, right? It's not, I, I don't call Romeo effeminate. Characters in the play call Romeo effeminate. Right. That's Shakespeare's language. Right. So you have a situation in, in the mid-19th century where men who were playing Romeo um, were duds. They couldn't do both halves of the role. One half is the crying Romeo in the friar's cell, woe is me. And the other half, a guy who picks up a sword, kills Tybalt, and is uh, uh, a kind of an aggressive, manly guy. And it turned out the only person who could straddle those roles successfully was in uh, in those days, Charlotte Cushman, who was lesbian, although that term didn't come into uh, existence until the mid-1890s. She was a really tough and uh, talented actor, and she was a great, great Romeo. And she played opposite, initially, her sister Susan and made her reputation in that role. But she wasn't the only one. There were a score of women in the mid-19th century before the Civil War, which ended this. Um, uh, who made Romeo a female role. And that's been lost from our history. And I'm not interested in it simply because, oh, isn't it cool that women were playing Romeo then? I'm interested in it because the, if you will, the, the forebear of what we're witnessing today in America in 2020 is uh, the age of manifest destiny. And manifest destiny was a phrase coined by a journalist in 1845 that represented a shift in national objectives and in manliness. The national objectives, let's pick a fight with Mexico and drive as far into Central America as we can, and let's kick the British out of the Pacific Northwest. Let's make this country a God-blessed empire instead of a sober republic. And we see have the shining been, sea. Yeah, exactly. And and we've been paying the price for becoming an empire since that coin, that phrase was coined. And along with that was replacing a kind of sober, industrious, hardworking manliness with a swaggering, aggressive, highly sexualized manliness. And once those two things are in tension with each other, it complicates the lives of actors who have to play these roles. So I'm interested in what the theater tells us about the, the cultural turbulence of the day, and I'm interested in how that cultural turbulence shapes the theater of the time. Yeah, that's really interesting, because it seems to me, and you know, if you were to just ask me, do you think Romeo would be a popular character for a male actor to play in the early 19th century? I would say, sure, it's the early 19th century. People are reading Shelley, people are reading Byron, that seems like a very early 19th century. But so you think in America, it's really that imperial masculinity that is irreconcilable with Romeo? I, I argue that. And um, this fantasy of aggressive, militant manliness, much of which that strutting that we see now with men carrying, uh, you know, assault rifles in public and, and flaunting it, um, That all ended in 1865. The last of the female Romeos ended in 1865. And why did it end in 1865? Because 700,000 Americans, some fighting for the Confederacy, some for the Union, lay dead. And this fantasy of of an aggressive manliness perished with those 700,000 men. So actors like Edwin Booth could then come along and play a sensitive Hamlet rather than the aggressive Hamlet of Edwin Forrest or John Wilkes Booth. Um, that provides a great opportunity to talk about the Civil War period, that you, which you write about extensively. I didn't realize how much of a Shakespeare nerd Abraham Lincoln was. He, he you know, I don't use this word in the book. 
but he was a Shakespeare bore. Yeah. And um, uh, go ahead. He, he, you talk about him, you know, subjecting members of his cabinet to his recitations of Shakespeare for hours. It was not just the people in his cabinet or his family, anybody visiting the White House late at night. Uh, he would have to uh, uh, go to the telegraph office to get the latest reports from his generals, and he'd carry a copy of Shakespeare with him and subject the telegraph operators to hours of his Shakespeare repetition. Uh, and he loved Shakespeare. I mean, I, I don't think any American understood or read Shakespeare better or more deeply than Abraham Lincoln. And the fact that he had no formal education to speak of uh, uh, is even more impressive. You don't have to go to an Ivy League college uh, or, or take a famous Shakespeare professor to make Shakespeare central to your emotional life. Lincoln is the greatest example of that. And he combines both, he, he knew Shakespeare very well, but also he, by being the president during the Civil War, experienced what is such a common Shakespearean situation, which is you're the head of state of a country that's at war with itself. Were there particular I, insights that he came to through that experience that you find particularly sort of compelling? Well, when, when Shakespeare first got exposed, I'm sorry, when Abraham Lincoln was first exposed to Shakespeare on that log cabin in the prairie, it was through uh, a reader that, in the end, millions of 19th century Americans were exposed to Shakespeare. And it, it had 32 excerpts of famous speeches. And if you open the page to where Hamlet, to be or not to be, was printed, on the facing page was Claudius's speech about killing his brother, guilt-ridden, tortured speech. And Lincoln would spend the rest of his life telling people, it's not to be or not to be that's the greatest speech in Hamlet. It's Claudius's guilt-ridden speech. And when he comes to the White House and is president during this blood-soaked war in which brother is killing brother, that speech meant more and more to him, as did the, the guilt-ridden speeches in, in Macbeth. And you talk about how there aren't actual quotations from Shakespeare in Lincoln, but that sense of that overwhelming guilt for something that at the same time you knew you had to do. I mean, he doesn't hesitate uh, to, to, you know, uh, impose martial law in Maryland. But at the same time, he says things like, I am now the most miserable man living. I mean, that seems very Shakespearean. His life was and his experience was Shakespearean and in, in a certain way, the fact that he had access to Shakespeare to channel that experience was extremely useful. And I don't think he went to see a play until the last couple of years of his life. But when he started to do so, he was completely hooked. And it was an age of great Shakespeare actors. And he went on the average, I think, once a week or more often than that. He would often slip into the theater after everybody else was seated, so we don't actually know how often he went. But uh, he was spotted in the theater. Those who went with him to the theater uh, left, leave us descriptions of that. And uh, I think he found great comfort in, in Shakespeare, uh, watching the plays enacted, reading the plays over incessantly. And, of course, the great irony is he was uh, assassinated in April 1865 by one of the leading Shakespeare actors of the day. Who he had seen perform, right? He had seen him perform, not in, not in Shakespeare, but he didn't like him. I mean, when, when Lincoln liked an actor like Edwin Booth, he went back night after night after night. And when he didn't like him, that was kind of it. And it wasn't about politics. Edwin Forrest was a Democrat opposed to Lincoln. And uh, he would actually change words in productions to confront Lincoln when he knew Lincoln was in the house. And Lincoln would welcome that and invite actors who didn't share his politics to the White House to talk Shakespeare. Kind of imagine that in 2020, any of that in 2020. Yeah. And uh, this was a man, again, who didn't go to grammar school, let alone anything after that. So uh, what he knew about Shakespeare, he knew from lived experience. 
I've I've heard it said, I don't remember by who, that anybody who has lived to the age of 18 or so has probably experienced, you know, 80% of the things that are in Shakespeare, at least in some level, but, you know, not in as uh, literal a sense as Lincoln does. I think Lincoln lived that a hundred times over. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the, 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 the sad things is it began to, he was a melancholy, depressive individual. And as the war wound down, um, Shakespeare infects his dream life. And he had a terrible premonition, part of which is imagining himself sleepwalking like Lady Macbeth. He's quoting Shakespeare and he sees in the sleepwalking as he's walking through the White House, everybody's concerned, somebody's dead. And he asks a soldier and the soldier says, the president is dead or has been shot. And this is weeks before his own demise. So in a way, Shakespeare so informs his life that he almost anticipates his own demise in the Shakespearean way. It's, it's haunting and almost unbelievable. Yeah, I found that just totally remarkable. And then that John Wilkes Booth is in a production of Julius Caesar in 1864. I mean, that's insane. Well, <clears throat> midway between where you are in Brooklyn and where I am in the Upper West Side is the statue of Shakespeare around 60th Street in Central Park. And um, it cost $30,000, and you had to fundraise to um, make it possible. So in uh, 1864, uh, there were fundraisers at the Brooklyn Academy of Music and at Booth's theaters in town, and all the Shakespeare actors kind of got together to to create benefits for for the statue of Shakespeare. And uh, John Wilkes Booth had two older brothers, Junius and Edwin, who were uh, superior uh, Shakespeare actors. He was pretty impressive in his own right. Uh, and they decided to act uh, and act Julius Caesar in, in New York City. And they tried to do this a year earlier, six months earlier, and they couldn't get the three brothers together. It didn't work out. But in November 1864, they were able to. And by that time, John Wilkes Booth had become radicalized and uh, committed to either kidnapping Lincoln or killing Lincoln. And uh, he played Anthony in that production of Anthony and Cleopatra. And just a few months after that, uh, after shooting Lincoln at close range, he leaps onto the stage and shouts, sick semper tyrannus, thus always with tyrants before darting out the back of a theater he knew well and made his escape for the next couple of weeks before uh, he was caught and killed. But he kept a diary, which I love and which most people don't know about, or those who do know about don't know that it's just filled with Shakespeare quotes. He's quoting from Macbeth, um, I must fly the course, or alluding to himself as a kind of Brutus figure who killed this tyrant. And uh, he just hated the fact that when the reviews of the assassination were in, uh, the reviewers, even in the South, hated his acting, so to speak, as this assassin. And it just kind of tore him up. Yeah, it's incredible that it seems like Lincoln was able to absorb such wisdom from Shakespeare. And at the same time, somebody like John Wilkes Booth seems to have completely missed the point of Julius Caesar. Or the, I mean, maybe that's just, I'm so convinced that that's the point of Julius Caesar that I can't see it any other way. But I think- Yeah, I, I, take, I take a more balanced view. Each one of them, each one of these men read Shakespeare in his own life. And Donald Booth read him, read Shakespeare as, uh, as a Southerner. He was born in outside of Baltimore, but he grew up on a farm that his father was a great, great actor, a British actor, came to America. They, they had slaves working that farm. Uh, and uh, he hated slaves, blacks. He thought America was made for the white man and not the black man. And everything in his belief system fed into a reading of Shakespeare. And his particular gifts were... Uh, sword fighting and uh, athleticism. And when he played a role like uh, Macbeth, it was simply as a soldier, 
as a great swordsman. That that's part of Macbeth. That wasn't part of Lincoln's Macbeth. Lincoln's Macbeth is a cerebral, brooding, guilty figure, but that's partial. And another part of it is the Macbeth who is a tremendously skilled soldier. And there were times when Booth was touring America, came to a town and dispensed with acts one through four of Macbeth because he just wanted to get to that fight scene and so did people who came to see him. So I see them as, both of them as seeing partially into that play, the play that reflected their belief systems. In a way, it almost seems like Lincoln's Shakespeare is kind of our contemporary Shakespeare. Like we we much prefer the introspection and the nuance and all the, you know, I, I feel like this happens so often. I'll be watching a Shakespeare play and suddenly there's a war. And I'm like, what is this war doing in the middle of this intimate psychological drama? Whereas Booth is sort of this, you know, like you described this imperial manhood version of Shakespeare as this kind of virile thing. Well, there are times like the Second World War where people really resonated with those warlike and martial elements in Shakespeare. And Olivier's famous version of Henry V speaks exactly to that. So I I think Shakespeare gives us back exactly what we were hoping to find in him. Yeah, I mean, that's what's always been so troubling to me about Shakespeare. And I, I was I don't say this so much anymore, but I used to sort of enjoy shocking other theater people by saying, oh, I don't think Shakespeare's that great because you never even know what he's thinking. I mean, you can make Shakespeare say anything you want him to. So how could he be a great artist? You know, I mean, you look at Cervantes and you know what he thinks about chivalry. But what does Shakespeare think about Julius Caesar? It's, you know, it if you think that an artist needs to take a side, it's easy to, to not admire Shakespeare, whereas if you if you admire somebody who's sort of stepping back and presenting both sides and letting you decide, then, you know, that's what that's why Shakespeare is great. I'm often asked about this and um, I'm confident, confident that Shakespeare had political views. I'm no less confident that we'll never have access. We'll never have access to them. And this is from somebody who's studied as closely as pretty much possible. uh, His, at least a couple of years in his life. Um, I've spent my entire adult life living with Shakespeare, teaching, seeing as many productions as you can get into um, here and abroad. And uh, there are reasons for this. Uh, Every other major playwright in Shakespeare's day, and I'm thinking of Marlowe and Kidd and Chapman and Johnson, really the list goes on and on, ended up... um, dead or in prison because they wore their politics on their sleeve. And I think one good thing Shakespeare learned was to survive as a playwright, you keep your views to yourself. Walk the line. Right, because this is a, a, a very tumultuous time in Elizabethan politics, right? So he doesn't want to appear to be more on one side than the other. Well, then you lose your head. Yeah, I mean, didn't Marlowe well, literally get assassinated? Shut down. I mean... There, this was really an age of censorship. And, uh, you know, we talked earlier about how the right wing is protesting outside or even inside the Delacorte Theater. Well, Shakespeare's Globe Theater, which we see resurrected on Bankside today and probably 100 replicas around the world, that was torn down in 1642. The theaters were closed. Politics and theater are not bedfellows. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk more about the historical Shakespeare. Um, I know this isn't really touched on in this book, but while I have you here, you you wrote a book about the authorship uh, controversy. Um, Why is that a controversy? Why does that question, you know, why are there, you know, intelligent, well-educated people who don't think Shakespeare wrote the plays that everybody else seems to think he did? There are two answers to that. First, The first answer is nobody came up with that idea until the middle of the 19th century. So for two centuries after Shakespeare, nobody said, hey, do you think he wrote those plays or did Francis Bacon or the Earl of Oxford or any of the 70 other, other candidates? The other answer I give to that is um, we've all been 
uh, at meetings or in rooms with smart people where smart people say and think dumb things. And this has been one of those areas where smart people feel the right to think dumb things. And after I wrote that book, uh, published Contested Will, uh, as the title runs, um, I got a letter from the Supreme Court of the United States. And if truth be known, when I tore it open, I thought it might be state Supreme Court, and I thought it might be jury duty, and I just done my damn jury duty, and I didn't feel like going back. Uh, and it turned out that it was a letter written by Justice, the late Justice Stevens. And um, I just couldn't believe I was getting a personal letter from Justice Stevens, and I read it, and it was quite clear that he didn't believe that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. He had just read my book and was writing to me about this. And he noted that the five signatures, uh, uh, six signatures of Shakespeare are wobbly and could not have been the work of a literate writer. And I thought about this and I thought, he's one of the great legal minds in this country. And it's somebody who's fought for issues that have made the lives of so many Americans better. And his replacements have been a disaster. How do I write back to this guy? And I looked at the letter and I saw that his secretary had both typed the letter and signed it for him. And being from Brooklyn, from Flatbush originally, uh, I felt the uh, Flatbush sap flowing in my veins. And I wrote back saying, I, I noticed that um, you were neither able to type the letter or sign the letter. And it's extraordinary to me that somebody of your extraordinary judicial career uh, might might well be illiterate um, and sent it along with my best wishes and respect for the great legal work he had done. Anybody can make those arguments. They're bullshit arguments. And I threw it right back at him. And he came back at me week after week, month after month with more letters, which I've donated to the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C., so others can see um, how disrespectful uh, a person I am. And I was getting increasingly exasperated. And I finally said, look, your candidate, the Earl of Oxford, only became interested, um, rather, the candidate you believe in, the Earl of Oxford, was the invention of a man named Loney spelled loony, who chose Oxford because he believed in a top-down, autocratic, anti-democratic world. What are you, one of the great defenders of democracy, doing supporting somebody who is using Shakespeare in this undemocratic way? You cannot support, you cannot sustain both views. And he wrote back saying, yes, I can. One has nothing to do with the other. And at that point, I ghosted him. It's a wonderful story. Thanks for giving me that. Um, I wanted to just, you know, ask you, because you, you brought up being from Brooklyn. Uh, is is that part of it for you? Is it personal? I mean, you you know, Shakespeare is a, 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 you know, more or less average guy in terms of his background. He doesn't, he's not a lord. He doesn't have, you know, he had a decent education, right? But not, a, a, he didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. Is that part of it for you that it just kind of makes your blood boil? The idea that you have to come from the aristocracy to be able to, contribute something to the culture? Um, I wouldn't put it exactly that way, but that's not untrue. I grew up in Brooklyn, went to a couple of high schools, dropped, dropped out of a couple of high schools. I was a terrible student, hated Shakespeare in in ninth grade when we read Julius Caesar sitting in rows. I didn't even get the dirty bits my classmates seemed to have gotten. Never took a university course on Shakespeare. And my knowledge and experience of Shakespeare was gained thanks to a guy named Freddie Laker, who you won't know, but he created uh, inexpensive flights between, charter flights really, between New York and London, where for 99 bucks, either both ways or each way, you could fly to London from New York. And I would hold down some job at the South Street Seaport selling trinkets or working as a street messenger before there were bike messengers in New York and fly over to London for 30 days. And I would see 30 plays in 30 days, all Shakespeare. And I did it year after year after year. And I was young and receptive to these plays. And it was like a drug for which you couldn't get arrested. And though habit forming in its own way. And after about six or seven years of doing this, I'd seen maybe 250 Shakespeare plays. And that is my knowledge of Shakespeare, not academic 
Uh, although I, I'm a professor, uh, I spend more time in the rehearsal room now than I do in the classroom. So I guess, and you can hear my accent, you know, unless I'm being cast in the role of a Brooklynite in a Shakespeare play. And so far as I know, there's nobody with a Brooklyn accent in any Shakespeare play. I can't act Shakespeare, so at least I can um, uh, consult and write and teach about him. Do you think having that be your exposure to Shakespeare is part of why you're so receptive to these very radical reinterpretations of Shakespeare over the years? I mean, you're not a you're not a purist in that sense. I don't have Shakespeare readings. I can't tell you what a play is about. And most of my uh, friends who are Shakespeare professors, um, quite brilliant, have readings. They think a play is about X for Y. You cannot walk into a rehearsal room and say, I think, you know, Macbeth is about X or Y. I think that Othello is about X or Y. You're useless. And you have to go into that room eager to discover what the people who are creating this production think this play is about. Not simply because it's about that production, but because these plays, when staged, tell us something about the moment. I look every morning at uh, a dozen American papers and maybe a dozen international papers and have for the last 30 years of my life. That's to get the news. But that doesn't explain what's happening. To understand what's happening, I have to go to a play whether it's Angels in America or uh, Hamilton or Richard II, which was just canceled in the park for this summer. I was excited to be working on that production because it was going to tell me something about my moment that I did not understand as fully informed as I am about what's going on in the news. Great. Um, Are there specific uh, you know, examples you have of being in the rehearsal room and an actor says something and it, changes the way you think about a character or a moment in Shakespeare? Um, when you see a play in the theater, you're seeing a homogenized result of um, a five or six week rehearsal period. And there are moments in rehearsals which are unforgettable and unrelatable. But... Um, let me close with a really good example. Uh, the best Shylock I've ever seen was F. Murray Abraham. And he performed it for theater for an audience. And um, I was there from the beginning of that show. And uh, I remember walking in about 10 minutes late. The train was running slow uh, into the rehearsal room. And um, there was a, everybody was dressed as everybody always is in rehearsal rooms and sweatpants and tight fitting t-shirts and the like, and just relaxed. And there was a guy there with a suit and a kippah. And I thought, damn, the anti-defamation league has gotten a guy in the room. How, how did they do that? That's just terrible. And his back was to me and I was just feeling the anger rise and the actors were going around reading their parts. And he started reading the part of Shylock. And he was already in the role of Shylock before he came to the theater that day. And he was the most professional, the most brilliant actor um, as Shylock I've, I've ever seen. And I've, I've seen a lot of great actors. And um, I remember one performance where at that moment that um, uh he is standing over his adversary in Act Four, Scene One, and um, uh, he's about to cut a pound of flesh from his heart. And I seem to remember Tom Nevis was playing. Uh, God help me, I'm blanking on the role. I want to say. Um, I don't. Please. I don't know this play very well. I'm sorry. Uh, 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 it's just funny that I can't remember. Uh, anyway, the, the the Merchant of Venice, the Christian, yes. um, uh, Bassanio is in love with Antonio. Antonio, uh, uh, Antonio is played by Tom Nevis, and he's he's strapped down with plastic straps on his on his hand. And um, Murray, we had given a a very dull knife to Murray because Murray is totally in the role. And um, 
Tom had told Murray he was going to do something different in this dress rehearsal. There's a crowd in the theater on 42nd Street watching this and at the Duke. And I'm sitting in the second row, madly taking notes to help the director tune it up a little bit. And um, Darko Treznak was the great director of this. And Tom, as Murray threatens to cut a pound of his flesh, spat in Murray's face just a whole gob of it. And Murray's standing there with his knife, and he knows the script calls for him not to cut a pound of flesh. And I'm half out of my seat onto the stage at this point because knowing Murray, he was that was it. That was just going to push him too far. And it was an electric moment. And he wiped the gob off and continued with his speech. But those are the moments you keep going back again and again to see Shakespeare for. That's fantastic. Well, thanks so much, uh, Professor Shafira. I've taken up a, a lot of your time, but this was so fascinating. Oh, I love the fun. book. Can I ask you one more brief really question? Please do. Okay, so we can't go to the theater. We're all in the quarantine. Uh, is there a recording or a film of a Shakespeare play that you think is particularly great that maybe people haven't seen? I am affiliated with companies that have done great work that have put stuff online. So if you go to the public theater site, you can see the spectacular All Black Much Ado that Kenny Leon directed a summer ago that shouldn't be missed. The Royal Shakespeare Company is putting up David Tennant in Richard II. I mean, there's just great stuff. Declan Donnellan's Winter's Tale is floating around. But having said that, I'm much more interested in performance. Go to the public theater website and you will see uh, a brave new Shakespeare challenge where actors in English, Spanish, and sometimes sign language as well will perform a scene or a, a speech from Hamlet. And then you are invited to do the same or turn it into a song or a painting or a dance. Because at this point, we have been too passive as we are all Zooming and Skyping and taking all the stuff in. And it's time to, to give back and to share. And I know I'll be looking in future years at these uh, coronavirus versions that people are sending in and learn something about this moment that I can't understand quite, quite at this moment. Well, great. That's a great recommendation to leave us on. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Stay safe. <laughs>